This morning's scripture reading comes from select passages from Daniel chapter 6. Verse 1. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man Daniel unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Verse 10. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or man, except to you, O king, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, The decree stands in accordance with the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. Verse 16. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the ring of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Verse 19. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me, because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done any wrong before you, O king. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den, along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. This is the word of the Lord. We're coming close to the end of our series uh, on Daniel, the book of Daniel, and we come to one of the most famous texts in the Bible, Daniel in the lion's den. And from this passage, we see four points. Four points come up. Uh, The first is the rise of Daniel. The second is the subversion of Daniel. The third is the faith of Daniel. And the last is the restoration of Daniel. We're going to move through the text today in four movements. The rise, the subversion, his faith, and the restoration of Daniel. First, we're going to look at the rise of Daniel. And uh, uh, Darius, we see Darius, he's the king of Babylon. He appointed 120 satraps, their governors that rule the kingdom. And what he did was 120 governors, you can't manage 120 people uh, effectively. You need to have administrators over them. So he put three administrators over these governors, and one of those administrators was Daniel. 
In other words, Daniel was a professional. He was working for the government. He, would, he excelled. He was excellent. He had gone all the way to the top. How did he do it? First, he did it. Verse 2, the satraps made accountable, they were made accountable to three administrators, and one of them was Daniel, so that the king might not suffer loss. In other words, Daniel was trustworthy. Daniel had integrity. In verse 4, it says they couldn't find any corruption in him. He was trustworthy. The second thing we see is he was diligent. The text says, verse 4, that he was not negligent. That meant that he was disciplined. He didn't overlook anything as an administrator. The third thing it says is that he was exceptional. In verse 3, Daniel was so distinguished, distinguished himself by, the, by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Think about this. This is Philadelphia. Philadelphia has a history of a blue-collar work ethic. All the big cities actually in the world have a, have a history of, of blue-collar work ethic. Now, how are you brought up? We're told, be honest, work hard. That's how you set yourself apart. That's how you make a name for yourself. And we're taught this, but there's a problem with this because in a big city, everybody's hardworking. In a big city, everybody has a great work ethic. How do you set yourself apart? Because the fact is, you can be honest and diligent and you can still get stuck in your career. You can be honest and diligent. The reality is people are resorting to politicking. They're resorting to patronage. That means that they're dishonest, right? They cut corners. That means they're not negligent because they've got to get ahead. Or they resort to some form of corruption, some form of corruption at the lower, upper ends. The king's people here, they were very corrupt. They were filled with corruption. But Daniel, he was trustworthy. Daniel was diligent. Daniel was excellent. On top of that, he was excellent. He was great at what he did. And he'd so distinguished himself. He so set himself apart. What does it mean to be a Christian in our world today? Here's a man who first, he excelled to the top of a pagan society. To the top. And secondly, everybody knew. Everybody knows because of the way he prayed, right? Especially we see this in the chapter. Everybody knows uh, that what Daniel stands for because his windows were opening, he prayed three times a day. And even though he was in the city of Babylon, even though he was in Babylon, he was looking out to Jerusalem, the city of God. That's why the windows were open. He was looking out to Jerusalem, the city of God. And thirdly, verse 2, the king didn't suffer any loss. In other words, the king prospered under Daniel. The king's people, his own people, they took advantage of him. They took advantage of him. They took advantage of his power. They were pleasant and compliant to the king in front of his face, but behind his back, they took advantage of him. But Daniel, Daniel served the king. In other words, Daniel's work spoke for himself. It spoke to his intelligence. It spoke to his honesty. It spoke to his integrity. It spoke to his trustworthiness. That was Daniel. Now, what that means is, mind you, uh, he wasn't trying to build his own name. He wasn't fighting like the others to get ahead. He wasn't trying to, trying, to, trying to rise and trying to build up his own name. He was serving the king. He was serving his city. He was serving his God, and he did it with integrity. He worked hard. He did it with integrity. He became trustworthy, and he was effective. He had authority, right? The king prospered under, with, with uh, Daniel in charge of people. Now, most people, why do they come to a big city? Why do most people come to a big city? It's to build. It's to rise. It's to make a name for yourself. It's to get an identity. It's to set yourself apart from other people. 
Because if I have that, if that happened, then I have an identity. That's why we go to the city. It's through our accomplishments. It's through our work that we set ourselves apart. Maybe it's, that's how you get a spouse. And if I have a spouse, then I set myself apart. Then I have an identity. Then I have a name. Then I have worth. But that's a lot of work. I mean, if you have, if wealth and power and your accomplishments and the approval of other people, such as your boss, your coworkers, if that's how you get a name for yourself, it's going to lead to conflicts. It's going to lead to jealousy Cycles of anxiety, cycles of tension, cycles of emptiness because there's this constant need to work to prove yourself. Remember the movie Rocky? Come on, you're from Philadelphia. You have to remember the movie Rocky. In Rocky, you have the original. This is the good Rocky, right? Um, Rocky is this underdog, the epitome of Philadelphia, the underdog who goes against the world heavyweight champion, Apollo Creed. And the thing is, he doesn't think he can beat Creed. Down towards the end of the movie, he confesses to Adrian, the love of his life. He says, I'm not going to be Creed. I just want to go the distance. Why? Well, the quote is in the, in the cover of your bulletin. He says, the reason why I want to go to the distance, because if I can go the distance, if I can last the entire match, and when that bell rings, then I will know for the first time in my life that I'm not just another bum from the neighborhood. If you look at your body, if you look at your mind, if you look at your relationships, the sum of all those things, they're under constant breakdown. We're constantly working. Why? Because we need a name for ourselves. Christians say, I already have a name. I've been given a new name. In Luke chapter 16, uh, one of the Gospels, you have Jesus telling the story of a rich man and Lazarus. The rich man has wealth. The rich man is finely clothed. The rich man is feasting, but Lazarus has none of those things, but he has a name. In fact, of all the parables that Jesus told in the entire New Testament, Lazarus here in Luke chapter 16 is the only person who actually has a name. Why doesn't the rich man have a name? Is it because he's rich? Jesus just hates rich people? No, that's not the reason why. It's because the rich man, that was his name. The wealth was his name. Being rich was his name. So for Christians, God is saying, what I have done in you, what I have done for you in Jesus Christ, my grace is enough. My grace is your identity. My grace is your name. This is at the center of true poise. This is at the center of true peace. This is at the center of a Christian's work ethic. It's not just working hard to build a name. A Christian works hard because he's serving his Savior and he's looking long, longingly for the city of God. That's what he's doing. And so a Christian is resilient. A Christian is wise. A Christian is honest. A Christian has integrity. That's how a Christian rises. That's the rise of Daniel. Now, the second uh, point here is the subversion of Daniel. Daniel has integrity. Daniel is diligent. Da- Daniel is fruitful. He's, intelligent, he's got integrity, he's diligent, and so he's fruitful. But in verses 4 to 5, you have these other administrators and the other governors. They're looking at Daniel and they're trying to find grounds for charges against Daniel, against this corruption. And they're looking for corruption. Why? It's not an issue of race. When you first look at this, you think Daniel's a foreigner. It must be an issue of race. But in verses 6 to 10, if you look at it carefully, they come up with a plan. And the plan is built specifically around getting one person, 
It's bent around getting Daniel. And verse 5 gives it away. It says that they, they say that the only basis for charges against Daniel is if it has something to do with the law of God. And so what do they do? They convince the king. They, issue the, they convince the king to issue an edict. Anyone who prays to any other god or man for 30 days, this edict is going to go for 30 days, any man, anyone who prays to any other god or man for 30 days except the king is going to be thrown into the den of lions. This is personal. They're looking to get Daniel. Not because Daniel's a foreigner. Yes, maybe they're jealous. Maybe they're jealous of Daniel. After all, there are three administrators who are ruling over 120 governors who are ruling over the entire kingdom of Babylon. And the king is about to set Daniel above the other two administrators. So naturally, there's going to be some, some, some jealousy. But verse 4, it says, at this they plot. Why? It's because Daniel is a threat. He's a threat. Daniel so distinguished himself above, among the others no, they're looking for corruption. They're looking for negligence, but they couldn't find anything. The others, they're corrupt. The others, they're negligent. They're taking advantage of the king. They're less effective as a result. But Daniel's effectiveness, Daniel's integrity, it's a threat to them. It's a threat to their corrupt nature. It's a threat to their lack of integrity. It's a threat to their way of working. Daniel's a threat to their jobs, yes, but he's a threat to their lives in this kingdom. In front of Daniel, these men are exposed. In front of Daniel, these men are at risk. And because he's so openly pious to his own God, they hated him even more. And so they conspired and they plot against him, not because he's guilty, but because he's innocent. They wanted to subvert his power and authority. That's what they wanted to do. Here's the reality. Here's the reality. The rejection of Christians by the world to a degree is unavoidable. If you're, if you're uh, being rejected in your workplace or in your community, the rejection of Christians by the world to a degree is unavoidable. That's called persecution. But think about this. Most Christians today are not trashed. They're not trashed in our society for the same reasons as Daniel. They're not. If we're really honest with ourselves, most Christians today are not like Daniel. Daniel had integrity. Daniel was faithful. In fact, if you ask most people outside the church today why they dislike Christians, it's not because of their integrity, and it's not because they're so hardworking. It's not because they're a threat because of their character. They say it's because they're hypocrites, because they're narrow-minded, because they're judgmental, because they're oppressive. It's rarely because they have good character. It's rarely because they're so consistent. It's rarely because they have good character, they're consistent, and they're excellent. At first, these men, they try to smear Daniel, but they couldn't because Daniel's not like them. And once they realize that Daniel's not like them, they start to hate him. They start to hate him. Do you get that? Christians, from the perspective of the world, are unexplainable. They can't, you can't nail them down. You can't explain them. The world can't understand why a Christian is the way he is. It's not in their nature to understand. Yes, we may be hypocrites. Yes, maybe they're jealous of some Christians, but it's mostly because we are foreign. We're foreign. Daniel's a foreigner, right? But that's not the main reason for their hatred. It's because 
why he is the way he is is foreign to them. He's an alien in that way. His character is unexplainable to them. His work ethic is unexplainable to them. His prospering is unexplainable to them. It's not just his conduct, although it is. A true Christian has a new center. How do you explain this? A new center, a motivational center. How do you explain that? Here's a person in this chapter. Well, let's take a look at a different example, okay? Here's a person who says, the only wealth I have is my wealth. The only beauty I have is my physical appearance, my physical looks, my youthfulness. So when your physical looks are gone and when you start to age, you no longer feel beautiful. When your wealth or your job are gone, you no longer feel wealthy. The only love I have is the approval of my friends or the approval of my parents, they say. So if my father rejects me, then I'm no longer acceptable. If my mother is unhappy with me, I'm no longer acceptable. If my friends push me away, then I'm no longer acceptable. In our world, if you lose your money, if you lose your wealth, if you lose your looks, if you age, if you lose the approval of people around you, you've lost everything. You break down, you corrode, you get angry. But a Christian says, no, no. I am centered around a deeper wealth, an ultimate beauty, a much greater approval, and I long for that. That's Daniel opening the windows to Jerusalem. I long for that. So success in this city is not what gets me. I may be good at what I do, but the success, the success of this, in this city, in this world, is not what gets me. I yearn for a greater city. According to Abraham, a greater city, according to the writer of Hebrews 11, he says, whose architect and builder is God. Daniel is effective, and he had integrity. Why? Because what gripped Babylon did not grip him. And so when he served as king, it wasn't about wealth. It wasn't about power. It wasn't about getting his own name. Three times a day, his heart yearned for Jerusalem. He would open up the windows and he would pray. Three times a day. And he knew that no matter what he had, he would never be home. He's not home, so he's longing for home. He's longing for his real city, his real home. He knew to the end who he was. He knew to the end who he was, that he was a foreigner in this land. Jesus Christ says to his disciples, that's why the world hates you. You are foreign. The world doesn't get you. The world thinks you're alien. The world's going to think you're narrow. The world's going to think you're foolish for what you do. You're never going to get around that. And here's the problem. Here you have Daniel. He's accomplished. He's respected. Feared in some ways. A threat. But he's so open about his faith. If you're one or the other, if you're one or the other, if you're just accomplished, if you're just good at what you do, or you're just open about your faith, so you're excellent with, in what you do, or you're just open about your faith, you're going to be overlooked. Daniel would have been overlooked if he was just one or the other. But because he was both, he was excellent and he was open about his faith. Because he was both, he was respected, he was feared, and yet he knew he was a foreigner. That's why he was feared. They, did, they couldn't explain him. He was unexplainable. Now, that's very different from why we're, we're, we're often persecuted. It's very different from why Christians are often persecuted today. Most of us, when we say, oh, I'm being persecuted, most of us, when we say that we're being persecuted, we're, it's either because we're not accomplished 
we're not being excellent in what we do, or we're not very open about our faith. It's usually one or the other. So that's why they call us hypocrites, right? Or that's why they say, well, he's lazy, and, and he's so absorbed in his church life, but he's not very engaged here in his work life. That's what they say. We say in our society, we like to say in our society, my career, I'm not allowed to really speak out. Uh, there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of talk about that in our world today. But if you think about this, on one hand, you shouldn't be offended about losing your voice then. And as a result, we get loud. And then Christians get very arrogant and obnoxious when we do that. Okay? But on the other hand, we shouldn't be afraid that we will lose our voice. And as a result, we're going to get soft. Jesus Christ, he says, this is normative. We are foreign. The world will hate you. Okay? What's an application of that? On one hand, if you're always trying to be excellent, and as a result, you're really engaged with the people around you, but you're not praying with the windows open, you see that? Then you're not obeying the call of God. You're not. On the other hand, if you're always fighting and if you're always offended because your rights are being taken away as a Christian, but you're not engaging and you're not being excellent with people around you, then you're not obeying the call of God. Do you see that? Daniel noticed down to the end, I mean, he was thrown into a lion's den. And the first thing that comes out of his mouth when the king opens up, right, when they roll away the stone, what does he say? Oh, king, may you live forever. Tremendous respect. Tremendous. He's engaged. He's on the, he was supposed to have died. And yet, tremendous respect, right? There's no sense of disrespect there down to the end. Very engaged. On one hand, if you're not trying hard, if you're not effective, and you're hated for it, that's not persecution. That's not persecution. On the other hand, if you're always outspoken about controversial Christian topics, uh, and you say it's for the sake of the gospel, right? And you're hated for that, that's not persecution either. That's not persecution. Persecution is always in the context of righteousness, for the gospel. So on one hand, you're going to be excellent before the Lord. You're going to be excellent in what you do. You're going to work very, very hard. But on the other hand, your lives are going to be defined by a greater wisdom, a greater honesty, a greater generosity, a greater hospitality, a greater openness to different types of people in your life, a greater kindness, a greater joy, a greater grace, a greater love. And that is going to give you a greater courage. When you have all those things, will that make you winsome? Will that make you attractive? Jesus Christ says, you are the light of the world. It's going to make you a great neighbor. And at the same time, it's going to make you vulnerable at times. It's going to make you open for attack. You're always going to be a target. Do you see that? Do you understand that? Daniel had excellent character and courage in his devotion and his love for the Lord. And as a result, he was subverted. He was persecuted. So we have the rise of Daniel. He was excellent and had excellent character. Then we have the subversion of Daniel because of his excellence and his excellent character and his love and his faith and his devotion to the Lord. He was subverted. Now we have the faith of Daniel. Daniel, 
He is the greatest upholder of law and justice in the most powerful empire in the world today. That means that he had risen all the way to the top and he becomes a representative of law and justice in his nation, but then he becomes a victim of law, of that law in an unjust way. In verses 10 to 12, the king trips over his own law. He issues this edict that was kind of laid out by his governors and his administrators. And because it goes unvalidated, the laws are corrupt, and it puts these, his people, the people that he loves the most, Dan, it says that Dan, he loved Daniel, puts the people that he loves the most at risk. Think about your own pursuits. Think about your own standards. Your own laws that go unchecked. Your own standards that go unvalidated. You see that? Your own standards regarding success and beauty, and power that you put on yourself or you put on other people, and that's how you measure and judge them. It puts people at risk when they go invalidated. One of the first things that we should do is we should test our desires. We should measure our laws, the standards that we place over ourselves and other people. We should validate them against what? An objective reality, an objective law, God's law. Know his word. Study his word you got to question your own standards. You know how you do that? Get involved in community, in some form of community. There are many types of communities in this church. We have community groups. We have couples fellowship. We have many different types of fellowships. Get involved. Get plugged in. Validate your standards against the law of God, against the word of God. If you say, well, everyone has a right to their own laws, then even Hitler had a right to his own law. You see that? You can't think that way. Daniel upheld justice and law, and he had integrity, but he submitted all of his laws to the scrutiny of God's own word. That's why even though it was forbidden to pray, he had measured that civil law against his own, the law of God, and it came up lacking. And because of that, even though it was forbidden, Daniel prayed. Daniel prayed. What do you learn about his prayer life? Verse 11, he prayed three times a day. He prayed habitually. He prayed regularly. Verse 10, it says he gave thanks as he had done before, regularly. That means in the midst of struggle, in the midst of suffering, as he did, as he had done before, he had prayed regularly. In verse 11, Daniel's a powerful man, but he prayed asking for help. He prayed with humility. He prayed with submission. He didn't just fight all the time. He didn't just take matters into his own hands and then come back and come to God to ask for help. You see that? He was asking for help. Even though he was a powerful man, he knelt below. He submitted. You know what that means? Prayer. Prayer has many dimensions, but they all reflect our view of God. The way you pray reflects how you view God. Is God just your friend or is he king? Is God just somebody who comes in and improves your life? God, I need this. God, I need this. So he just kind of takes a menu list of things that you're ordering. Then who is king? Then who's the king? You see that? Or is he your life? Is he just someone who improves your life? Or is he your life? In verse 10, you see Daniel, he's on his knees. God is king. And he looked to Jerusalem meaning he saw God's city, he saw God's temple, even in a foreign land, even though he was in a wilderness, he saw that he always had access to this king. On one hand, God is king, so he measures all his laws against the law of God, but on the other hand, he had access to this king. He saw the love of God. He saw the grace of God. He saw it on him in his life. When I was a child, when I was younger, I was taught that Daniel was boasting about his faith, 
And it never sat right with me because it seemed like, wow, that seems so obnoxious. It seems so arrogant. But you see that? That's not what's going on here. He wanted a clear view of the temple. He always wanted to be reminded that he's a foreigner here. Despite his risk, despite his situations, he prayed. He prayed, he knelt, he submitted. Why did he do that? It's because he knew he had access. Even in the wilderness, even in our suffering, Daniel longed for the city of God in the suffering. It pointed him all the more. He saw the edict. He went upstairs, opened the windows wide. It longed, made him long even more for the city of God. Do you see that? Do you do that? Here the king is caught in his own law. You see that in verses 13 to 15. He's caught in his own law. And so in verse 16, Daniel is thrown into the lion's den, thrown into the wilderness because of his longing for God in the midst of suffering. He's thrown into suffering, a deeper suffering. You see that? That's the faith of Daniel. Lastly, we see the restoration of Daniel. One of the biggest problems with this story, okay, one of the biggest problems with this story, this narrative, at least from a pastoral or preacher's perspective, is that most people have heard it. <laughs> That's one of the biggest problems with the story. Because the way that we're taught this story often ruins our view of God. Here's how I was taught. I was taught as a result of this passage. Do you see this? If you are good, Daniel was good, so if you are good, and if you just trust God, you got to pray, then God is going to come down and shut the mouths of lions in your life. So you better be good. You better trust. That's what you got to do. If that's how you were taught, no wonder why our faiths are shaken. You were taught wrong. I'm telling you right now, you were taught wrong. It's not true. That's not Christianity. Think about this. If the Christian life is be good, trust God, and he will rescue you. Well, I mean, there's always, we're not saying it's less than that. But if the Christian life is solely be good, and then God will rescue you first, give me one success story. Show me one success story where that has happened. No wonder why we're always tired. No wonder why we're so fatigued and we're, we're so distrusting of God because that's not even what Jesus said. Who's Jesus? Jesus was good. Jesus was perfect, and yet he died. Jesus was perfect, and yet he died. You can't show me one success story. Second, why Jesus come? What's the purpose of Jesus coming? Daniel trusted in the midst of his suffering, but here's somebody who trusted even more than Daniel. He trusted God perfectly. He obeyed God perfectly. In Mark chapter 10, you have this rich young ruler. He comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? In other words, even this rich, wealthy, young, beautiful, handsome ruler, he was a king, even though he was, he was a king in his own right, he calls Jesus good in the ultimate form of good. Okay? Daniel betrayed, Daniel was betrayed in the first half of this passage. He's restored in the second half of the passage. A stone was rolled over him to seal his sentence, but he was brought back to life, literally brought back to life out of the lion's den. In verse 17, he emerges triumphant. 
And you see towards the end of this text, verses 21 to 24, Darius is overjoyed because Daniel is alive because he trusted God and you have the plotters and the conspirers. God, God used the death that was designed for Daniel to seal the fate of all the evil people in the country and as a result, the king makes a call for everybody, everybody in the entire kingdom to turn to God. Now, of course, that never materialized. Never fully materialized. That materialization took an even greater betrayal, an even greater restoration, an even greater Daniel. Jesus Christ obeyed God. Jesus Christ trusted God. Jesus Christ had integrity. Jesus Christ had, he was trustworthy. Jesus Christ was placed over the entire world as his king, and he was excellent in what he did. He was just, but he had compassion. He was good, and yet that's why he was hated. And so he suffered he went to the cross, and he died. The Bible says in John chapter 1, in John chapter 1, the Bible says that Jesus Christ, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness did not understand it. What does that mean? Jesus Christ, king over the universe, became foreign to us. He was foreign. And so the people resented him, and they were jealous of him, and they tried to find charges against him, but he was incorruptible, and so they couldn't find charges against him. They couldn't do that. And so Jesus Christ was attacked by the high officials and by the religious people in his day. And he was condemned by the law in an unjust manner. He was, that happened to him. It happened to Daniel at one level, and it happened to Jesus at the ultimate level. And he didn't fight, and he didn't protest, and he was crucified, and his death was sealed. His sentence and his death was sealed by a stone that was rolled over his grave. But the resurrection shows that Jesus Christ, that even death couldn't hold him down. Jesus Christ emerged victorious. Death had died. That which was intended to destroy him and, and God's people, all of God's people, it was used by God to seal the fate of evil once and for all. Do you believe it? that Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. And when they rolled away the stone, there goes all of our burdens, there goes all of our fears, there goes all of our guilt, there goes all of our cowardice, all of our sin. That's the gospel. That's good news. You know what news is? News is reporting of something that happened. Something that happened, that took place, an event, something that you could look at that happened. If you moralize the story, this narrative of Daniel in the lion's den, if you moralize the story, it's never going to be good for you. It's never going to be good news for you, for that matter, okay? Because the moral of the story is going to be, if you're good, then God's going to rescue you. It's never going to work for you because then you're going to work and work and work because you have to be good. And if, things, if bad things happen to you, it must be because I'm not good. You see that? You're constantly going to be working. Jesus Christ was perfect. He was holy. And yet he died. And that means if Jesus Christ suffered, it means we're going to suffer. Everyone's going to suffer. Suffering is a part of our lives, the brokenness of this world. We're going to suffer. And it's because we're not good. Sin rules over our lives. Sin has a, has a grip on our lives. But Jesus Christ came to die for our sins. That's the good news of the gospel. The penalty, the pollution of sin, the, the presence, one day the presence of sin will be gone from our lives. Do you see that? That's the good news of the gospel. And here it is. First, Daniel came out of the lion's den 
Daniel came out of the tomb because one day Jesus Christ will go into the tomb. And that's the, that rescue is greater than just, whoa, whoa, I'm free from hell. God saved me from hell. I used to think it was, salvation was just some sort of ticket from, uh, that t- takes us out of hell. It's more than that. It's a restoration of life, of our lives to be what we were intended to be with God as our creator and king. We are kings. We're administrators over people, over children, over our lives, over our work. We are prophets. We represent God in a foreign land in the wilderness. We are priests. We are called to worship God, but there's even more. Notice that we're going to be restored to all those things. In heaven, we're going to be perfect kings, a royal priesthood, right? We're going to be perfect kings. We're going to be perfect prophets. We're going to be perfect priests. But there's even more than that. Notice, nothing in this passage, nothing in this passage is entirely miraculous. Okay, there's nothing about this passage. There's no divine vision. There's nothing incredible. There's no bolt of lightning that comes down, right? Nothing here happens that's, that's incredibly miraculous to that degree. What do you see here? Lions that are intended to tear people apart, Right? Basically, don't tear Daniel apart. That's the miracle, right? There's nothing incredibly miraculous. A guy disobeys a law. It's an unjust law. And so he's sentenced to death, and he's thrown to the lions. There's nothing incredibly miraculous about that. Lions just tear people up. They kill. They destroy. We all know this. But Daniel, in this den, he wasn't harmed. That's a picture of a restoration of the future. You got to keep in mind, Daniel is very old at this point. Okay, he's lasted through multiple kings. Very old at this point. And so it's not like he could fend off the lions. It's not like he shut the mouths of the lions, but he's a prophet. And if you look at your call to worship in Isaiah chapter 11, those last two verses, uh, or the last verse in the call to worship, it says, uh, you're going to see that someday the calf and the lion and the yearling will be together and a little child will lead them. In other words, even the most vulnerable of us will one day be able to lie with the calves and the lions together. In other words, right now, nothing works right. That's not, the way we see the world today is not the way, as beautiful as it is at times, it's not the way the world was intended to be. Everything's broken. You buy a car three years from now, it's like your dream car three years from now, maybe not even three years from now, it's going to break down, it's going to have problems, and you complain, and you think your solution is, I need a new car. You buy this dream house, once you get into that house, after some time, you're going to say, I hate this house. That's what you're going to say. Because the natural part of our hearts is we're never satisfied. We're always looking for something to give us a sense of worth. And after a while, it breaks down. It corrodes. And with that, so does our sense of worth. You see that? The way the world is today, because of sin and because of the brokenness that came of sin, it's not, it's not the way it's intended to be, but one day, this is a promise. Daniel in the lion's den is more than just this miracle showing the redemption and the restoration of Daniel today. This isn't just about salvation of our lives today. There is a future. There is a promise that one day, he will be able to lie down with the lion. The lamb and the lion will be able to lie down 
The calf, the lion, the yearling together, and a little child, the most vulnerable of people, a child will be able to lead them. One day, everything, the world is going to be restored. Everything that you've ever lost, everything that's ever been broken will be bound up and renewed, restored. That means your bodies are going to be restored. That means your minds are going to be restored. That means everything that is broken in your life will be restored. That's what's going to happen. That's a promise. There'll be no disease. There'll be no death. There'll be no guilt. Can you imagine a life where there's no need to feel guilty anymore and there'll be no guilt? The lion's den is a picture of everything that's going to be restored. Darius, he looks down and he says, Daniel, did God rescue you? And Daniel says, God, his angel shut the mouths of these lions. Regardless who you believe this angel to be, who does it point to? Who does it actually point to at the least? On the cross, Jesus is practically reciting Psalm chapter 22. That means to the end, while he's suffering, in the ultimate suffering, as he's lifted up, he's ultimately suffering, he's still looking out and he's longing. He's reciting scripture. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On one hand, he's reciting and he's living out and he's applying scripture in his life. Psalm 22, the first verse. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he also says later on in this text, in Psalm 22, later on he says, all who seek me, see me, they mock me, they hurl insults at me, they're shaking their heads and they say, he trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. And he doesn't. And get this. Later on in Psalm 22, he says, Roaring lions are tearing prey. They open their mouths against me. You know what the lion represents in the Old Testament? The lion represents the justice of God. The roaring lion. Jesus is known as the lion of Judah. He is the justice, the true forever justice of his kingdom. You know what's happening on the cross? He wasn't just being mocked, he wasn't just being insulted. It wasn't just a physical rejection from people. On the cross, Jesus Christ, who is trustworthy, who is excellent, received the full wrath of God, the punishment of sin that we deserved. And he was literally being torn apart by the wrath of God that was roaring against him. Do you see that? By the justice of God. Jesus Christ is the greater Daniel. And because he went before the ultimate lions in the ultimate den, now we can descend into the smaller dens of our lives. And still trust. God is faithful. Still trust. You can only deal with loneliness, for instance, when you see that Jesus Christ died alone, completely alone. God had left him. He said, you have forsaken me. The only way that you can trust God will never forsake you if you see that Jesus Christ died alone. You see that? When he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, the Father has rejected me. I'm no longer acceptable. I'm no longer good. I'm no longer excellent. I've become sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him who had no sin. Jesus was excellent. He had become sin so that we can become children of God. Do you see that? You know what the name Daniel means? This is the only way you're going to be able to live. The gospel is the only way you're going to be able to live without the fear of judgment from other people. Do you know what the name of Daniel means? God is my judge. God is my judge. That means, I'm going to kind of colloquialize it today. That means I don't care what you think. 
I don't even care what I think about me sometimes. Sometimes you're your worst critic. You beat yourself up. You can stop. Jesus Christ was rejected so that you could be accepted by God. Jesus Christ was torn apart on the cross so that you could be restored by God. And one day that means your character today can be restored by God. The Spirit of God resides with you, in you, dwells in you, and you have the power, the same power that rose Jesus from the dead, lives in you to shape you and change you. The gospel also saves you from trying, always trying to prove yourself. Why? Because you have a name. Jesus has proven you, set you apart. You know what that means? It's going to save you from anger. It's going to save you from anxiety. It's going to save you from bitterness when you're in the wilderness, when you are suffering, when you're in the den. And notice, the king saw Daniel, and everybody saw him as foreign, but the king loved him. Darius loved Daniel. Why? Daniel was so free. He didn't need to lie. He was so free, he had integrity. He wasn't self-serving. He had honor. He was attractive. He was winsome. If you're a Christian, inevitably, some people are going to hate you but other people are going to be drawn to you. And all the more they're going to be drawn to God. That's what it means. That's what it means to be a Christian in a world that is hostile to the values of God, to the law of God, to the biblical God. Do you see that? We have the resources for that. We have the greatest resource for that. We have Jesus Christ by his Holy Spirit. Let's pray together.